Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, when the the wise men saw the star, we just heard it read, when the wise men saw the star, They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Multiple layers of joy. And all they saw was the star. And we see the cross. And we see the crown. And we see the throne. So give us a greater joy. That's in proportion to our greater vision. And would you come now and save? Come and sanctify. Come and glorify your Son by doing both. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let me begin with a disclaimer because some of you may be wondering about this. You may be saying, hey, Mike, uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 12, that's, that's Epiphany Sunday. Why are we reading it on Christmas morning? Uh, and that's true. This is an Epiphany Sunday uh, text, and Epiphany Sunday isn't for two more Sundays. It's not till uh, January 8th. Um, and uh, I guess I have two responses to that. One is, hey, we just finished Matthew 1, and Matthew 2 comes after Matthew 1. Uh, but more fundamentally than that, um, this is a great Christmas text because the issue in this text, the Fact around which all the action revolves and all the action is in response to is the birth of Jesus Christ. 
which is what we celebrate on Christmas. And so this morning, I want to think with you about uh, three different responses uh, to the fact of Jesus's birth, three different responses to Christmas, Uh, a wise response to Christmas, a wiser response to Christmas, and then the wisest response to Christmas. So wise, wiser, wisest. Now, let's look first at what a wise response to Christmas is and who represents that in this passage. Well, uh, Herod does. Now, don't misunderstand me. Herod was a very wicked man. I know that. Uh, His uh, wickedness was legendary. He murdered one of his wives, sparing the other nine. He murdered three of his sons, his own sons. His wickedness was so uh, well known in the Roman Empire that the Emperor Augustus is uh, reported to have said, I would rather be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. So don't misunderstand me when I say that Herod represents wisdom. He was a very wicked man. But don't misunderstand Herod either. He was a very wise man. You can't be uh, successfully wicked for any sustained period of time without being pretty savvy. And Herod was a survivor. Uh, The danger of uh, false wisdom, of course, is that um, there's some wisdom in it. So where's the wisdom in Herod's response to the birth of Christ? Well, here it is. Herod knows that the fact of Jesus' birth does not leave neutrality open as an option. Herod knows instantly that the fact of Jesus' birth means that there is no such thing as a spiritual Switzerland that you can uh, run to and uh, try to hide in. And sure, Matthew wants us to be surprised that this a man who supposedly was the king of the Jews and who's six miles, about six miles away from Bethlehem, he doesn't know uh, about the birth of the Messiah and has to be told by these Gentiles who are coming all the way from the east. And we don't even know how far east, but certainly they are Gentiles and they're coming, uh, they're coming from outside Israel. And Matthew wants us to feel the irony that the people who should know don't. But here's what Herod does know, regardless of how he finds out. As soon as he does know, he knows he's got to act. He's wise enough to understand instantly that the news of the birth of this uh, king of the Jews means regime change. He knows that. And so what does he do? Well, he... He does what we do when we want to preserve the status quo. We call in the experts. And so he calls in the theological experts and and the pastoral experts and the Bible experts. And Matthew says he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. I mean, he didn't just talk to one or two. This was significant enough to him that he issued a summons to get the best biblical scholars and the best theologians and the best priests all in the room together so he could get the right answer. And then he enlists the wise men. Do you notice this? First he gets help from the the chief 
uh, priests and the scribes, and then he secretly enlists uh, the wise men to help him once he figures out that Bethlehem is the place. Um, He knows it matters. Now, I would say uh, that that's a great gift to us on Christmas. It's quite a contrast. Uh, Herod is really quite a contrast with uh, most of the way our culture teaches us to observe Christmas, where there's running in the background uh, of, you know, it, it basically starts in, at the end of September now, right? Uh, running in the background, this soundtrack of Christmas and, you know, the story and the significance of Christmas is retold to us and repackaged in so many ways. And and Jesus is increasingly diminished and the significance of the birth of this child is significantly shrunken in the way that Christmas is told and retold to us. And so to see Herod, who was a bad guy, understanding instantly and intuitively that either this birth meant nothing or it meant absolutely everything. That's a a help to me. You know, when I was originally mapping this sermon out a number of weeks ago, uh, the wise men were at the front of the sermon and Herod just took this message over for me. Because I realize that Herod represents so much, uh, so much uh, that we need to learn from. It's easy to dismiss him. This is one of the reasons why I always loved uh, reading Christopher Hitchens, the atheist who just passed away, and always loved listening to interviews with him. Because he knew it mattered. He knew, like Herod, that either the birth of this child meant absolutely nothing or it meant absolutely everything. The one option that was not available was, huh. So Herod's a gift. But Herod's wisdom has limits, right? Uh, We need to see where he's wise and we also need to see where he's foolish. And where he's foolish is that he underestimates Jesus Christ. See, Herod's a survivor. He he spent his whole life, he was king for a long time. He got to be king. His dad was a survivor before him. Hooked his caboose, if you will, or his camel train to the Romans and became uh, an influential guy. And Herod, uh, Herod knew how to play the angles, how to work the angles. He was a survivor. If there was anything that Herod knew how to do, it was to manage risk. And so he uh, responds to Jesus in exactly the same way he's always responded to every other crisis in his life. He tries to manage the problem. He thinks he's dealing with a Jesus who can be managed. That's the limit of his wisdom. He thinks that he's dealing with a Jesus who can be outmaneuvered. But Herod learns... What all of us who've come to Christ already have learned and what everyone will eventually learn, whether or not you respond to God's offer of grace in the gospel. And that is that there is no such thing as a human life that Jesus Christ can be written out of. In the end, 
right? Sooner or later, just as Herod discovered, there is no way to outwit Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is celebrating in Philippians 2. Eventually, every knee is going to bow, whether it's in heaven or on the earth or under the earth. They're all going to bow. And every tongue, regardless of where it is, is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, friend, let me ask you, are you living a life that's trying to outflank Jesus Christ? The sooner you realize that that is foolish, the wiser you will be. So Herod gives us uh, some wisdom that we can gain from, but we should also gain wisdom from his foolishness as well. And that leads uh, to the wiser response to Christmas that we see in the wise men. Now, there are two main ways, I think, that Matthew shows us about the wisdom of the wise men. And that's in their journey, their journeys, and in their joy. Uh, let's think first about their journeys. They really make two journeys, right? First, they come from the east to uh, Jerusalem, and they end up in Jerusalem. Some of you may wonder, why are they going to Jerusalem? Why don't they go straight to Bethlehem? They saw the star. They, they understand the king of the Jews has been born. Well, see, they don't know exactly where in, uh, in Israel that... Uh, the king has been born. And so where would you go if you didn't otherwise know? You'd go to the capital city, right? So that's why they go to Jerusalem. Uh, These are Gentiles. Uh, They're very surprising. Now, sometimes we hear them called magi. You may know that. Depending on your translation, you may know that word. That's literally the word that Matthew uses. And you you say, well, what's a magi? That's a good question. A magi, uh, by this point, Uh, By the time Matthew writes his gospel, the Magi, what they were initially was a cast of priests in Persia. But the term had become uh, broad enough to encompass just basically it could be a synonym for a wise man. It could be a synonym for somebody who was an astrologer in which these guys appear to have been at some at some measure. Uh, It could have been a synonym for somebody who was an advisor to a king in it. These were important people. And a little uh, surprising that they would be the ones who come. There's another layer of irony because both in Judaism and in Christianity, right? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, magic, astrology, those things are not looked upon well. And so one of the things that we're supposed to see, see, we romanticize these magi. We romanticize the wise men when you see the pictures. And first of all, we think there are three. The text never says there were three. Sorry to blow that one out of the water. There are three gifts. That's why people think there are three of them. But the text never says that. But Matthew's showing us not only the irony, not only of Gentiles knowing more about the Messiah than the Jewish people, but also this particular kind of Gentile. It'd be like having a palm reader come in. A gypsy or something like that. And there's a lot that we don't know about them. We don't know how it is that they learned about this. I mean, we were only told a few things that they saw his star, right? Uh, verse uh, two and verse nine, his star. They they were watching the stars and somehow they knew that this star was not only significant, but it indicated the birth of the king of the Jews. Now, how would they know that? There's a lot we don't know. 
they know because there were Jews from the exile who were scattered and living and had been for many centuries where they were? Had they been exposed to the Old Testament scriptures? It seems likely at some level. And we know from verse 12, the last verse in our passage, if God communicated with them in a dream, then it's certainly possible that he could have done it before. But we have to acknowledge there's just a lot of mystery here. And yet there are some things that are clear. What we know about God is that he hasn't confined the knowledge of who he is to one culture. We know about God, right, that the heavens declare his glory, Psalm 19, and every human being lives under the heavens. We know from Romans 1 that every human being has engraved upon their heart the knowledge. What it means to be human is to know God. That's actually the biblical definition of what it means to be human. It is to know God. Paul says in Romans 1, everyone knows that God is eternal. Everyone knows that he's omnipotent doesn't matter what culture you're in. It doesn't matter whether you've ever read the Bible or not. Everyone knows that. And theologians talk about how uh, God has embedded in every culture uh, redemptive analogies. Where there are certain things in every culture, uh, stories, sometimes we would even classify them myths. Uh, C.S. Lewis was big on this. That every culture in some sense, has embedded within it some strand of story or logic that when the gospel comes in, irradiates the whole thing. Is that what's going on here? Perhaps. This shouldn't be hard for us to understand. I mean, why do we think that Harry Potter is so popular? I know you didn't see that one coming. Or the Lord of the Rings. Or the Chronicles of Narnia. Why is it that Harry Potter is so popular? It's because that story is about the power of sacrificial love. Why would that theme be attractive in our world? Unless the story of our world was the story of sacrificial love. Why would the Chronicles of Narnia be so popular even among non-Christians? That's about a king who sacrifices himself to redeem a traitor. Why would the Lord of the Rings be so crazy popular? Because it's a story that talks about how the world is broken and needs to be restored by the return of the rightful king. See, we know exactly the same thing. History belongs to God. The wise men show us that the nations belong to Jesus Christ. Every life, this is the same wisdom that Herod eluded. There is no such thing as a human life that can write Jesus Christ out of it. So their journey shows their wisdom. They come a long way. This, what they know, even the little bit that they know, draws them out of their ordinary setting, draws them out of their life and puts them on a pilgrimage to make sure that they see this king. Like Herod, right? They know that this news means they've got to act. 
They can't just stay in Persia or wherever they were and say, oh, isn't that nice? King of the Jews was born. Great. He's got a star. Nature's testifying to him. The scriptures are testifying to him. I'm so glad I don't have to do anything. They share Herod's wisdom, don't they? They do something about it. They know it means everything changes. Like Herod, they know it means regime change. But unlike Herod, they respond not with opposition to the king, but with joy and submission to him. Do you see that? They come all the way. Even when they're around the creep Herod, they won't let that dissuade them. Even when Herod doesn't send anybody with him, they go. And they, I love that verse. I love verse 10. When they saw the star, which is some, in some sense has moved somehow, right? I, I can't explain that except to say God's in charge of everything. God is God. That's not hard to do. But notice how they respond to it because, and why they rejoice over the stars because God is using the star to lead them to the the child. And it's the child who is the cause of their joy. And Matthew makes sure that we understand that this is no idle joy. This is no kind of casual commitment. This is all the way in. No holds barred. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. How many times do you have to say it, Matthew? See, that's wisdom. Even though they knew so little, that's wisdom. Because they know that this child means joy. Not everyone who knows about Jesus goes to Jesus. But it's only the ones who go to Jesus who find joy. And yet I want to even say with respect to the wise men that there are limits to their wisdom, right? Even though... Uh, they're unlike Herod. Their their heads aren't uh, better than their hearts. I mean, they what they know they go with, right? Unlike Herod, Herod knows he's born in Bethlehem, doesn't go. It's six miles away. And the wise men they go, but but they still notice this: they don't stay. And what they can tell us about wisdom is wisdom about responding to the birth of Christ is ultimately limited. There's a ceiling on it, if you will. It can only go or a floor. It can only go as deep as their actual knowledge of Christ. What they know about Christ is very little in comparison to us. Right. So we can't say that they're the wisest response. We can only say that they're a wiser response to Christmas. So we need to think about what's the wisest response to Christmas. That's our last point this morning. And that wisest response to Christmas really should be ours. And we are the ones who should respond much more wisely to the birth of Jesus than either Herod, certainly, or than the wise men. Uh, we should be wiser than Herod. We should know that this, uh, this child's birth not only means that neutrality is not an option, but that full-hearted, joyful commitment is the only option. And we have much more reason for that commitment than either Herod did or the wise men did. Think about how much more we know Uh, about Jesus Christ than Herod 
and the wise men. Think about how much more we know about Jesus than Herod did. We know the real king, don't we? We know his character. We know that Jesus came for the Herods of the world. See, Herod thought and believed that when this king came, when he was born, he rightly realized that that meant regime change. But what he wrongly concluded about Jesus is that uh, his welfare and Jesus's glory were a zero sum game so that if Jesus was given proper acknowledgement as the true king that he was, that would mean that Herod would suffer. And friends, that's a mistake. We know that Herod came, excuse me, that Jesus came for all the Herods of the world And I say Herod's plural because, in a sense, we're all like him. What was Herod? He was a king gone bad. What are we? We are kings gone bad. That's what the Bible tells us. God made us the kings of the earth with a big K. When he made us in his image, he made us to be the kings of the earth. That's what it means to be a human being. Adam and Eve were the first Herods because what they tried to do, they they said uh, they, they fell for it. They completely bought the lie that regardless of what God said, that he wanted them to rule and to subdue the earth like the kings that he had made them to be. They bought the lie of the serpent that God really didn't want them to be kings. And that as long as they were in relationship to God, they were going to be uh, slaves and not kings. And they bought that propaganda. And guess what happened? They tried to cut themselves off uh, from God's rule. And what happened? They thought they were going to be kind of free agent kings. And what happened? Their lives shrunk. They didn't expand. Isn't that how sin always works? Promises you expansion always produces contraction. Promises you surplus always leaves you with a deficit. Promises to give always ends up taking. And so Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's story is our story. Adam and Eve uh, cut themselves off from God's rule and their lives shrunk and they became not big K kings anymore, but little K kings and really weak little K kings who couldn't even control themselves anymore and rule themselves. Now, most of us don't have a recognizable kingdom that we can point to and say, I am master of all that I survey. And Herod looked like a king. It was easy to recognize he was a king. But, you know, friends, we act like we're kings over our own lives, don't we? We have that same spirit, which is we want to survive. And we think that unless we're on the throne, we're not going to survive. And so what we try to do is we come up with ways of living where we try to push God to the fringes. And all we're doing is repeating the same error of Adam and Eve over and over and over again. And we're repeating Herod's error because Jesus Christ came for the Herods of the world. Not just to them, but for them. 
Sin had taken big K kings and turned them into little K kings. Sin had taken strong kings and turned them into weak kings. Sin had taken good kings and turned them into bad kings. And yet, notice, knowing that, the Son of God still came. He came for the Herods of the world. He came for the kings who had gone bad. We know that much more clearly than Herod did. And we know even more than that, that he came for the kings gone bad to make us kings again. Not to make us slaves. You see, God's purpose in your life and in my life and for all the nations is it's not a zero-sum game. The, the wonder of the gospel is that God is saying to us and promising us that because of Christ's work of living and dying and rising again, God's original vision for mankind of populating the earth with kings who would reign forever and ever under His reign, that that vision is being achieved and is going to be fulfilled. And it's accomplished through the death of Christ. That's what the Bible tells us. When Jesus went to Calvary, after He'd grown up uh, from Bethlehem and gotten all the way to Calvary, at the cross, uh, the Revelation teaches us, Jesus gave Himself as a perfect sacrifice in the place of all the kings who had gone bad. And, and by giving Himself as that sacrifice to God the Father... Jesus was purchasing. He was purchasing a people, Revelation says, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people on the earth. That's Revelation 5.9. There was a purchase transaction going on and the purchase price was the blood of the incarnate Son of God. Well, what was the end toward which Jesus was making that purchase? Revelation 5.10 says, And you have made them to be a kingdom. And they will reign forever. Jesus' crucifixion, in other words, friends, was our coronation. You see how great the gospel is? Do you see how much better it is than those vague soundtracks that run through our minds? You see that everything the serpent told Adam and Eve about God's intentions was totally wrong. And in the end, what causes the problem in history is that Adam and Eve, our four parents, believed a lie about the goodness of God. And all the rest of history is about God showing that it was a lie. And that He is better than we think. And Jesus Christ is the best proof of that. Herod didn't, wasn't willing to believe it. But in Jesus Christ, what happened is that the biggest K king became the smallest K king on that cross. The strongest king gave himself to be the weakest king. The best king gave himself to be made on the cross the worst of all kings so that he might purchase a remnant out of humanity from all the earth to restore the kings of the earth. We know a lot more than Herod. And we know a lot more than the wise men. We know, I mean, they showed up at the manger and they were giving gifts to the king. It was totally logical. 
It's wonderful what they did. I mean, the gifts that they bestowed on this little infant. I mean, what faith, right? What faith to look at this very sketchy kind of, of a place where Jesus was and to recognize in these very dubious circumstances, this king, they fall down, they worship him. There's no holding back, right? That's great faith. And they gave gifts. And they probably thought they were giving gifts to the kid before them. But we know that the child they were visiting was already out giving them. He was already giving them way more than they were giving him. He was already uh, bestowing on them greater treasure than anything that they could ever bring before him. We know that even in that uh, manger, in that feeding trough, the Son of God was giving himself, giving himself uh, to the kings gone bad. We know, right, much more clearly than they ever could have, that he was giving himself in his birth so that he could one day give himself to the world in his death. We know that every breath he drew, every beat of his heart, every thought that crossed, that fired across the synapses of his brain, every single one of those things was, when it happened, the greatest and most precious treasure that had ever been present on the earth. Offered to God. Offered to God on behalf of men and women and children. And that gift in every instant of Jesus' life, was the greatest treasure that had ever been given. And every succeeding moment, every succeeding heartbeat, every succeeding thought and, and breath that he drew was a greater gift still. And it all reached a climax when he offered himself, standing on all that perfection for our imperfection at the cross. We know so much more than the wise men knew. And we know better than they did why it is that we know. It's one of the most interesting questions to me about the wise men. How did they know? They sure seemed to figure stuff out and it it seemed kind of obscure. I had a star. Knowing that he was the king of the Jews. Don't you want to know more? I want to know more about how they knew. But maybe like them, we know, we know that there's ultimately only one explanation for why we're here this morning. It's not the powers of our deduction. It's the same reason, by the way, that the wise men were there in Bethlehem. It wasn't the powers of their deduction. It's not the powers of our deduction. It's not their moral superiority. It's not our moral superiority. That's not why we're here either. There's ultimately only one explanation for how it is that someone ever comes to Christ. And in John 6:44, Jesus, many years later, explained it. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's how the wise men got there, right? The Father drew them, drew them through the Scriptures, drew them through the witness, of perhaps, of some Jews in the Diaspora who'd been brought there through the exile. Think about that. 
God used even the sin of Israel to plant and their disobedience to him to plant the seeds in a land far away. Amazing. There's only one explanation for why anyone ever comes to Christ and it's the grace of God drawing them. You know, in each of our lives, we think we know. We talk about this all the time. What was the path that we followed to get to Jesus Christ? And we, in some measure, we can sort of describe what we think we understand. But I'm, I'm just increasingly convinced the longer I'm a Christian that I actually understand less and less about the path. And I suspect that if God is ever kind to show us uh, how it is that we were brought to Christ. The path will, in one sense, look infinitely more complex than we think it does. And also infinitely simpler. Because it's about grace. It's about the gift, not only of the Son, who is willing to be made the least, so that we might be brought into the Father's bosom, but it's about even the knowledge of that son being a gift as well. So, friends, has God drawn you this morning? Has God brought you to Christ? Has he made you wise? I pray that he has. Let's pray. Father, Give us that gift of wisdom to know Christ and to hold nothing back and to rejoice exceedingly with great joy and to give our hearts again to him this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.